Okay, today we're going to talk about the colonial period in Korea, uh, the period during which Korea lost its independence and was integrated into Japan's empire. Officially, that's 1910 to 1945. Uh, as I mentioned in an earlier lecture on the subject, uh, really the beginning of the end of Korean independence starts in 1894-1895 with the first Sino-Japanese War. And really by 1905, when Korea is declared a protectorate, uh, its independence is, for all intents and purposes, uh, more or less over. Uh, this is a period of enormous social, economic, cultural, and ideological transformation, as well as uh, a great deal of angst, anger, loss, violence. Infrastructure was developed, culture was suppressed, nationalism and communism both set down roots, and this laid the foundations for the post-war North-South split that's still with us. Now, all that means that historiographically, in other words, the way we see, understand, write, read history, uh, this is a very fraught, a very difficult era. The majority of Koreans, both North and South, generally appear to agree in broad strokes with the assessment of the historian Jim Wong Kim, who wrote, quote, Japanese colonial rule in Korea was unusually harsh and destructive, producing virtually no benefit for the Korean people. And without downplaying the many indisputable negatives of the Japanese colonial administration of the Korean peninsula, many non-Korean historians take a more nuanced uh, view of the issue, pointing to the changing nature of Japanese rule over time also to Japan's massive injections of capital into the economy, and other factors that had both short and long-term, at least neutral, if not positive, effects. Right-leaning Japanese historians in particular have tended to emphasize only the positives, and they have expressed by turns dismay and disgust that Koreans are ungrateful for Japanese benevolence uh, in other words, for dragging a hapless, benighted Korea kicking and screaming out of pre-modern darkness into the light of civilization. Such differences of opinion are, for better and worse, typical of the historical memory of empire around the world. Some historians attempt a relatively value-neutral, positivistic, objective account of colonial rule. Michael Seth, for example, called it top-down, centralized, direct, and intensive. But, of course, history is not value-neutral. That's in part because the study and writing of history is always about understanding and shaping and controlling the present and the future, at least as much, and usually more, than it is about the past itself. One of the most sensitive issues in evaluating colonial Korea, as it is with many now post-colonial societies, is referred to as collaboration. Those who believed, for one reason or another, that Japan's rule was either legitimate, beneficial, or both. And those who not only prospered under Japan, but supported Japan's efforts in the late 1930s to eliminate Korean language or culture. These people have been slapped with the label collaborator, which is functionally a synonym for traitor. Is this fair? Again, Michael Seth uh, is interesting here. He's argued that though 
quote, Koreans have often been portrayed in modern histories as either passive victims of imperialism or engaged in a nationalist struggle against their Japanese oppressors. It's perhaps more accurate to see them as embracing elements of change and taking advantage of the opportunities available to them. Seen in this light, what about those cultural nationalists who acquiesced to Japanese control and tried to educate the masses to higher national consciousness over the long term? Were they more or less quote-unquote patriotic than the anti-Japanese, often communist, guerrilla fighters who resisted Japanese imperialism at any cost? And what of the expat nationalists who worked to persuade Western nations to liberate Korea? Hindsight makes it easy to pick sides. Anti-Japanese guerrillas are nationalist freedom fighters. But that's because Japan lost. Collaborators would have been the heroes had things gone the other way. As the Japanese novelist Murakami Haruki eloquently put it in his cult classic novel uh, 1Q84, the most important proposition revealed by history is that, at the time, no one knew what was coming. So I want to take us back to 1895 uh, and talk about the decade uh, that leads up to the Declaration of the Protectorate in 1905. The decade from 1895 to 1905 was marked by the rivalry between Russia and Japan for influence in Korea, the last Korean-initiated attempts at major reform, and the establishment of a Japanese protectorate over Korea, effectively ending Korea's independence. The Russo-Japanese War and its aftermath shut Russia out of Korea, foreclosed the possibility of domestic reform in the ailing Chosun Kingdom, and led to the annexation of Korea by Japan in 1910. Russia had been developing Siberia since the 18th century. The completion of the Trans-Siberian Railroad to Vladivostok began in 1891. This was followed by the construction of a second railway in 1896. This was the, China East, the Chinese Eastern Railway, which stretched across Manchuria through Harbin and shortened the distance to Vladivostok. The following year, in 1897, Russia obtained a 25-year lease on Port Arthur, uh, also known as Dalian, or Dairen in Japanese, on the Liaodong Peninsula, which it had stolen away from Japan in 1895, most likely for this express purpose, and it obtained railroad rights from there to Harbin to connect with the Chinese Eastern Railway. With China out of the way, thanks to defeat by the Japanese in the Sino-Japanese War, Russia turned its attention to Korea. Though it's often forgotten in the history of Korea, no doubt because of the country's subsequent annexation and incorporation by Japan, Russia attempted to kidnap Kojong, the Korean king, not once, but actually twice after the war. And in fact, they were successful the second time, forcing him to rule from the Russian consulate in Seoul for about a year. As China had before it, Russia waged a kind of cold war with Japan over control of Korea for about a decade before the Russo-Japanese War effectively settled the matter. During that decade, Russia and Japan signed agreements that granted Russia equal rights with Japan to station legation guards and grant loans to the Korean government. They essentially divided Korea into two spheres of influence. Korea also signed a secret agreement in which Russia promised to protect King Kojong and provide military and financial aid. Strapped for funds to pay off indemnities and finance his government, 
the king began to lease rights to the exploitation of natural resources, lumber to the Russians, gold mines to the Americans, and railroad construction to the Japanese and others in return for loans. In 1897, Kojong returned to his palace from the Russian legation and changed the title of his kingdom to the Great Empire of Korea. These were symbolic attempts to reassert Korean independence and its international standing. However, even after Kojong ascended the imperial throne and outwardly the new Korea assumed the form of an independent imperial state, Korean realities had not changed. This same period saw, not coincidentally, the birth of the first identifiably modern nationalist movement in Korea, known as the Independence Club. As it was elsewhere, in Korea the development of modern society and culture was inseparable from the rise of nationalism. The Independence Club pressured the government to stop granting concessions to foreigners, to reform the tax system, and to convert the Royal Privy Council into a parliamentary assembly, among other reforms. It was opposed, sometimes violently, by conservatives, and ultimately banned after two years by the waffling, indecisive king. Although, given what he's been through, it's kind of hard to blame him. Though it was notably short-lived, one of the more interesting and consequential legacies of the Independence Club uh, and its era of nascent, nascent modern nationalism was inspiring elite women to debate the proper roles of women in the context of national health and strength. Topics included sexual equality, education, and more. Schools for women were formed. Other women demanded the abolition of concubinage. In 1900, Esther Park, a graduate of the Baltimore Women's Medical School, began practice as Korean's, Korea's first woman doctor. Uh, in March 2018, Google celebrated the anniversary of her birth with a doodle. After 1900, the Royal Mint and private textile companies began to hire women workers. Women established organizations to pay back foreign debts incurred by the regime. Others protested administrative corruption, called for independence, and organized participatory groups. They founded societies in 1906 and 1907 to campaign for women's education, to oppose separation of the sexes, and to end the practice of using shawls to cover their faces in public. By the beginning of the 20th century, then, there were 2,250 private academies across the country, and although most trained men, a few, founded by Koreans, educated women as well. Schools also provided venues for debates and campaigns that heightened the students' patriotism. Animated by the same hope for and spirit of independence contained in the king's national renaming and the founding of the Independence Club, for example, many scholars turned away from the Chinese classics to study what they saw as distinctly, uniquely Korean language, history, and literature. In any case, the appearance of organizations like the Independence Club advocating political goals outside the government, was an indication of the emergence of a modern civil society in Korea. A genuine modern civil society is in part defined by its diversity, and it would be a mistake to assume that their modern sensibilities and agendas were all in necessary opposition to traditionalism or conservatism. In fact, many of the most notable groups were dedicated to goals of national independence and strengthening for example, in 1904, the Korea Preservation Society was formed to oppose attempts by Japan to turn state land into private land for sale to Japanese developers. 
the Society for the Study of Constitutional Government did what its name suggests until it was banned and rebooted as the Korea Self-Strengthening Society. Under this new guide, <coughs> excuse me, under this new guise, the society tried to promote economic development and the spread of education. There were, however, important conservative groups, as well as groups that favored placing Korea under the wing of a major protector, China, Russia, Japan, etc. An example of the last is the Tonghak movement, which in 1905 changed its name to Religion of the Heavenly Way. The movement's third patriarch returned from exile in Japan to form the Unity and Progress Society, which favored Japanese leadership in achieving reform and volunteered to assist Japanese forces during the Russo-Japanese War. It's also been argued that much progress was made in modernizing Korean society, even in this short-lived interstice between the two wars, the Sino- and Russo-Japanese wars. Michael Seth, for instance, notes that the forces of modernization were being felt throughout the country. Railway construction, financed by Japanese and American companies, began in 1896. Seoul was being electrified, and Western-style buildings were changing the face of the city. Port cities such as Busan and Incheon were taking on a cosmopolitan atmosphere. In the countryside, where the great majority of the population lived, farming was increasingly oriented toward the export of rice, soybeans, and other agriculture products for the Japanese market. The old rigid social structure of Korea, based on inherited status, was starting to break down. The legal privileges of the dominant Yangban class had ended. The examination system had been a principal vehicle for reaffirming status and gaining access to powerful government positions. It was abolished, as was slavery. On balance, however, the decade between the two wars fought over Korea was not a good one, at least in a geopolitical sense for Korea. Not only did foreign powers strengthen their political and financial grip on the country, but Korean leadership, and the king in particular, proved mostly incapable of carrying out more than symbolic gestures of resistance. The Korean government drifted, making only modest efforts at self-strengthening. In the last two decades of the 19th century, most of the country's most energetic and talented reformers had left the country or withdrawn from public affairs. Some had been killed. The government at its center had an indecisive king who erratically shifted positions. Conservatives held the top positions, and incompetent and often corrupt officials made up the staff. This left Korea rudderless and vulnerable, trapped between mammoth regional competitors playing the Game of Thrones, or as one contemporary fishing, uh, French illustrator put it, the fishing party. Korea's geopolitical importance to all three of the great powers in East Asia was not a plus. As we've been discussing, with China's position in Korea weakened after the Sino-Japanese War, Japan's main rival for influence in the peninsula was Russia. Over the next decade, Russia and Japan contended for concessions inside Korea and eventual control over the peninsula. Japan recommended, recommended dividing the peninsula at the 38th parallel. Russia occupied Cholson territories with the intent of building additional ice-free ports. As you'll remember from a previous lecture, Japan had entered into an alliance with Great Britain in 1902. This gave Japan a freer hand in Korea when it decided to preemptively move against Russia. That happened in February 1904. 
Japan first launched a surprise attack on Russian-leased Port Arthur, and then quickly sent troops to occupy Seoul, despite Cholson's declared neutrality. Both the British and Americans accepted the legitimacy of Japanese action. The eventual defeat of Russia was surprising and spectacular, but not complete. The terms of the victory settlement negotiated by American President Roosevelt reflected this partial victory. The 1905 Treaty of Portsmouth did not, for example, include an indemnity for the Japanese because their bargaining position was not particularly strong. This would cause great trouble at home for the Japanese government. And we've covered this in detail some uh, elsewhere, so I want to skip ahead to the conclusion and the consequences, of course, for Korea. Uh, in short, although the major battles took place outside Cholson, the Russo-Japanese War had a profound effect on the fate of Cholson and its people. So what happened? After defeat, Russia withdrew from Korea and Japan strengthened its control. An agreement signed during the war forced Korea to cede control of its finances and its foreign affairs, one to Japan, the other to the United States. After the war, control of foreign affairs also passed to Japan, making Korea a de facto protectorate, uh, though the Japanese insisted that was not the case. Even the manner in which the protectorate treaty was signed reflects both the unequal relationships between the two and Japan's overbearing attitude toward, as they saw it, the hapless Koreans. What, what do I mean? Well, the head of the Japanese negotiating team ignored protests by King Kojong and several ministers and declared the treaty valid because a majority of ministers had approved it. The U.S. accepted this arrangement for Japan to provide Korea with, quote, guidance, control, and protection in the so-called Taft-Katsura Memorandum of 1905. In the name of the, quote, maintenance of general peace in the Far East, the two Pacific imperial powers, that would be Japan and the U.S., agreed that uh, Japan would also recognize America's special rights and interests in the Philippines. A series of subsequent agreements further strengthened Japanese involvement and control in all levels of economic and political matters in Korea. In reality, however, Korea was under Japanese control since the start of the Russo-Japanese War in early 1904, so the formal protectorate was not a sudden change or traumatic event, but simply one in a series of steps by which Japan consolidated its rule over Korea. The process, however, did not end with the protectorate. Rather, it was another step in Japan's absorption of Korea. Ito Hirobumi one of the original Meiji oligarchs and the chief, chief Japanese negotiator of the Protectorate Treaty, became head of the Residency General that Japan created to control Korea. His vision was to main, maintain an independent Korean government that would nevertheless willingly carrying out, carry out institutional reforms under Japanese guidance. This was a distinctly Japanese take on informal empire, with the nominally independent Korean king, uh, government, excuse me, acting basically as a suzerain, as a puppet. Korea ceased to be an independent legal existence as a modern state once it became Japan's protectorate. According to international law at the time, only civilized nations were deemed sovereign. Japan had become one in the eyes of the world, and thanks to Japanese campaigning, Korea did not meet the standards for sovereignty. It's hardly a new idea to suggest that this was a misunderstanding of the situation on the part of the self-appointed civilized and civilizing nations. 
there's a history of Korea written back in 1944, for example, which uh, imp- provides a, an impassioned refutation of this view. It's a bit long, uh, but there, there's a passage that I think is worth quoting more or less in full. And it goes, sweeping generalizations with respect to the Korean people, stamping them as filthy, dirty, lazy, lacking in dignity, intelligence, and force are completely unjustified. At the beginning of the 20th century, young Koreans were demanding freedom and participation in government. Hundreds of young men were imprisoned, killed, or escaped escaped abroad. This struggle against the oppressive and corrupt government would certainly have continued, and better government would undoubtedly have come to Korea, and it would have been a native government. Western writers who are horrified when they see that an oriental people's copper currency is unstable and its sanitation and plumbing deficient sometimes, fail to understand why such a people would prefer to live under a bad native government rather than a good foreign one. And this failure leads them to adopt the standards of law and order and natural progress as their sole criteria for judging a colonial regime. Korea's position, subordinate to Japan, both in international law and in the eyes of the self-proclaimed international community, did not mean that either Kojong or the Korean people at large accepted Ito's administrations without protest. In 1907, for example, the the king made a last-ditch effort to secure his country's independence. He sent a secret delegation to the Second Hague Peace Conference, demanding that Korean sovereignty be restored and recognized. The Korean delegates were not even seated at the conference. Back home, some Koreans launched fierce opposition to Ito's initiatives. When the governor general dethroned Kojong in favor of his son, uh, which was apparently a bit of retribution for the 1907 Hague stunt, riots broke out, broke out in the street. Sun Jong, who is rumored to have been mentally ill or deficient, served for three short years as Korea's last emperor. His primary duty was to do the bidding of the Japanese. The Joseon dynasty was all but over. Ito ordered the Korean army dissolved, and some of the discharged soldiers began a guerrilla war that lasted for four years and took thousands of lives. The Japanese themselves estimated that there were 69,832 Korean guerrillas in 1908 with nearly 1,500 clashes that year between Korean irregulars and Japanese troops. That number fell to 25,000 in 1909 and 2,000 in 1910. By that time, the majority of the remaining rebels had fled across the border into Manchuria or Siberia. At the Governor General's directive, the Korean Home Ministry took charge of peace preservation, banned freedom of association, and instituted censorship of newspapers and books. In 1907, Japan concluded an agreement with Russia that recognized the latter's special interests in Outer Mongolia in return for a promise of non-interference in Korea. This was essentially the final major step before annexation. Ito Hirobumi stepped down from his position as governor general. The reasons for this are unclear. Um, It has been argued that he had concluded that his gradualist policy had reached a dead end and that it was time to annex Korea. Other scholars have suggested that while on the one hand, he continued to assist in the preparation for annexation by negotiating a treaty abolishing the Korean ministries of justice and defense. In fact, he had resigned because he was concerned 
the time was not right to move ahead with annexation. Regardless, he was assassinated on October 6, 1909, on a visit to Harbin to confirm Russian acquiescence to Japan's annexation of Korea. He was shot by An Chung-gun, who is generally portrayed as an anti-Japanese Korean nationalist and patriot. The truth is more complicated. It usually is. According to An himself, he was concerned not that Korea had been made a Japanese protectorate, but rather that Japan had subsequently failed to fulfill its promises of strengthening Korea and establishing what he called peace in the East. And An's assassination of Ito was not, also contrary to popular belief, the reason that Japan annexed Korea and made it a formal colony on August 22, 1910. That decision had actually been made by the Japanese cabinet on June 6, 1909, several months before Ito's death. Annexation was postponed for a year because the Japanese government sought to avoid the impression that the annexation was an act of revenge. The August 1910 annexation treaty explicitly addressed the instability and suspicion that continued in the peninsula despite, for Japan, because for Korea, of Choson's five-year-long protectorate status under Japan. In fact, the decision for formal annexation was the result of the realization in Tokyo that, quote, the cost of containing popular resistance to the Japanese presence proved as high as direct political and administrative control. Michael Robinson's summation of the period of colonial rule by the government general of Korea, the GGK, exposes much of its ambition, ruthlessness, and consequences. He writes, the GGK penetrated Korean society more thoroughly than had any previous traditional government, and by the end of their rule, the Japanese had left their mark everywhere. They used their experience building the, modern, uh, building the Meiji state and 20th century technology to advance their strategic, economic, and political goals with breathtaking single-mindedness and rigor. Not content with simple compliance, the colonial state not only dominated Korea following the usual paternalistic logic of colonialists, but they also believed they could actually assimilate Koreans culturally. Indeed, the Japanese attempts to efface Korean culture, even its language, exacerbated colonial exploitation, repression, and racism. And this poisonous memory of this experience continues to plague Japanese-Korean relations more than a half century after liberation. Let's talk about uh, the sort of substance of Japanese rule in Korea, which officially, of course, lasts 35 years, uh, 1910 to 1945. During that time, it's generally seen as going to through three distinct stages. The military period, uh, sometimes known as the Dark Age, 1910 to 1919, the cultural policy period, 1919 to 1931, and the assimilation period, 1931, to 1945. This final decade and a half was also the period of mobilization for war and then war itself. This brought terrible hardships down upon the peninsula. Both the harsh military rule of the first decade and the final years of Japan's long 15-year war were probably at the front of Jim Wong Kim's mind when he wrote, quote, Japanese colonial rule in Korea was unusually harsh and destructive, producing virtually no benefit for the Korean people. In other words, that quote, which I used at the beginning of this lecture as well. Sandwiched in between was the second decade, 
the period of so-called cultural rule, which saw many of the most oppressive and restrictive policies at least relaxed. Most historians admit that whatever Japanese intentions may have, intentions may have been in adopting this new stance vis-a-vis -vis its colony, the quality of life for ordinary Koreans was vastly improved by these policy changes. Nevertheless, throughout the three and a half decades of Japan's rule in Korea, policies and realities on the ground conformed to the strategic and extractive logic of Japanese colonial policy. Without excusing, justifying, whitewashing, or downplaying any of Japan's reprehensible actions during this period and the run-up decade 1895 to 1905, uh, I want to try in this section to present not only the downsides of the period of colonization, but also some of the ways in which incorporation into the Japanese empire uh, laid social and economic groundworks that, when turned back over to Korean hands in world uh, after World War II, ultimately seemed to have aided or at least accelerated the South Korean path to becoming a very successful example of a modern, independent, capitalist society. It's important to realize that the aftermath of empire is always complicated, and it behooves us to attempt at least to capture some of that complexity in our memories and judgments. Even the quite stridently nationalist, I should say, uh, Kim admits, quote, although colonial Korea was generally created to satisfy Japan's political and economic ambitions, at the same time, Japan did play a role in Korea's modernization. So it's incumbent upon us to understand the messiness of actions and consequences, and consequences both intended and unintended, that characterize all colonial relations. Let's start in the so-called Dark Age, the military period of 1910 to 1919. During this first decade of rule, Japan made the peninsula into more or less a police state. It began to transform Korea into an economic periphery to serve Japanese needs. Two army divisions were stationed in the peninsula, one of which was in Seoul. With that threat hanging over Korea, the GGK made itself the most powerful authoritarian dictator, dictatorial force in Korean history. Not even the kings had had so much power concentrated in their hands. The GGK appointed provincial governors and county-level administrators to carry out its agenda. It restricted Korean business activities, seized huge tracts of public land, and started to reshape the economy to produce agricultural exports for Japan. A subsequent land survey was one of the most significant policies of the colonial government. This survey, which took a full eight years to complete, was the basis of a new land ownership system. Because, in the Japanese view, Chosun Dynasty law had not clearly defined land ownership, the survey was designed to establish a broad tax base and to rationalize ownership and title to all agricultural land, both paddy and dry field, to untilled, untilled upland, river floodplains, tidal basins, and forest land. It plotted, assessed, and fixed ownership for every piece of land on the peninsula. Because a significant number of Korean landholders had avoided registering land with the Chosun authorities to avoid paying taxes, they had no evidence of that land ownership when the Japanese came calling. So the GGK appropriated land from Koreans without what they considered to be sufficient docu documentation. By the time the survey was completed in late 1918, the GGK was the single largest landholder in Korea. 
Japan won Yangban landlords' compliance by granting them noble titles and guaranteeing their property rights, essentially turning the traditional Confucian elite into a landowning elite overnight. Additionally, Japan also firmly controlled Korea's forest land, its fisheries, mineral resources, industries, and finances, and used this control to steer the peninsula's natural resources toward the metropole. To do so, the Japanese invested enormous economic capital in infrastructure development, much of which, despite its initial purpose, helped kickstart economic recovery after World War II. During the colonial period, however, infrastructure development projects fueled the economic peripheralization of Korea, so that some 90% of Korean exports, mainly rice and other grains and leaf tobacco, went to Japan, and about 65% of its imports, chiefly clothing and other light, other light industrial goods, came from Japan. As Japan's colony, Korea functioned as a source of raw materials, as well as a commodity market for Japan. The colonial regime also ended Korean political participation and instituted expansive police powers, including long-term detentions, torture, etc. The press was censored, large-scale meetings banned, and the police empowered to carry out a slate of duties, including tax collecting, supervising irrigation and water controlling, overseeing road construction and maintenance, enforcing health regulations, and acting as public information officers. Simultaneously, the Japanese invested millions of yen in government buildings, shrines, railroads, motor, motor roads, power and telephone lines, hydroelectric dams, barrage, uh, barrages and irrigation works to support the kind of socioeconomic integration of a modern economy, even an extracted one. Of course, this infrastructure had unintended consequences, some of which I've mentioned vis-a-vis -vis the effects of the Sankin Koltai policy of uh, Tokugawa Japan. This first decade of oppressive policies on the one hand and Japanese investment in modern social and economic infrastructure on the other, which allowed unprecedented mobility and connection, combined to solidify a broad-based, widely shared sense of Korean national identity as never before. It also ensured that a modern Korean national identity would be defined for most, at least, as deeply anti-Japanese. The second phase of colonial rule began in 1919. This is the period of the so-called cultural policy, or uh, cult it's the cultural rule period. It was a response to the so-called March 1st movement, which was spurred in part by the death of Kojong in January 19th in January 1919, and in part by U.S. President Woodrow Wilson's call for national self-determination for people subject to foreign rule. This was <clears throat> point number five of Wilson's famous 14 points. French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau is said to have quipped that even God Almighty had only 10. Though Wilson seems to have only meant for national self-determination to apply to whites, Korean nationalists were among the many non-whites around the world who, sometimes creatively and deliberately, misinterpreted the message. A group of Korean religious leaders met at a Chinese restaurant in Seoul and read aloud a Declaration of Independence. They had initially intended to read the declaration in a nearby park, but moved to the restaurant to avoid creating a disturbance. However, crowds met to hear the declaration, and a person who happened to have a copy read it to an enthusiastic crowd that began marching down the main street in downtown Seoul. 
The protests spread across Korea over the next few days. Most of the more than 650 protests by as many as a million Koreans were peaceful. A few were not. Japanese crackdowns were not either. According to official Japanese statistics, which no doubt underestimate the scope of violence, over 550 Koreans were killed, more than 1,400 were wounded, and more than 10 times that many were arrested. Some reports estimate that by the middle of the following month, more than 7,500 demonstrators were killed, some 16,000 wounded, and more than 46,000 arrested. The Japanese also destroyed or burned down 715 houses, 47 churches, and two schools. Afterward, however, the GGK did in fact put in place policies to restore some civil and personal liberties to Korean subjects. Adrian Buzo has noted that, quote, the Japanese pursued two key objectives. The first was to ensure that widespread political demonstrations could never happen again. The second was to placate moderate Korean nationalism. The colonial regime hoped to mitigate the rise of nationalism, to co-opt militants and radicals, and to diffuse the situation in Korea, both for the stability of the peninsula and for the sake of Japan's international reputation. The large-scale Korean resistance and the harsh Japanese suppression were at odds with the image of enlightened colonialism Japan wanted to project. Some restrictions on freedom of speech and association were removed, as were those on Korean business formation, for example. The flip side of this was an increased police presence and ramping up of surveillance. A new governor general, the relatively moderate Admiral Saito Makoto, was appointed to carry out a raft of policies often encapsulated in slogans such as Harmony between Japan and Korea, or Nisen Yuwa, and Cultural Policy, Bunkaseji. This was a, there was a bit of symbolic fanfare to ring in this new era, too, as on the one hand, the Korean crown prince married a Japanese princess, uniting the royal houses, and on the other, several thousand Korean political prisoners were granted amnesty and released. It's worth noting that these changes were the result not solely of Korean action. Recall, this is the same period in which Japan established its first party government and ushered in the more liberal urban culture of the interwar years and also that this was partly a response to the horrors of war, uh, World War I, and to the rice riots in Japan that came after World War I. Saito was thus supported at home by the newly elected prime minister, Hara Takashi, who we've talked about in a previous lecture. As Mark Caprio has shown, Hara was a key figure in changing Japanese policies in Korea. An avid supporter of assimilation, the prime minister challenged the primary contradiction in Japanese rule. Wyatt preached Korean exclusion as internal citizens, but provided a policy that encouraged discrimination that rendered them as peripheral or even external subjects. Hara's fingerprints are on many of the reforms introduced to Korea in the early 1920s. Sadly, as in Japan, many of these tolerant and relatively enlightened policies, again, their underlying uh, motivations aside, came under pressure in the late 1920s, as they did in the Japanese metropole. During the early half of the 1920s, however, Saito's GGK abolished beatings and torture, and he pulled the police out of the marketplaces and other places where they once interfered. He pledged that more Koreans would be employed in government positions, and that Koreans would be appointed as judges. He promised more schools and more educational opportunities for all Koreans, 
and he put Korean civil servants on the same pay scale as Japanese. Saito's central policy changes also included removing the requirement that the government general be an active duty general or admiral, replacing the military police of the previous decade with civilian police, restoring limited freedom of speech, press, assembly, and association, and finally, ending the requirement that Japanese government officials and school teachers wear uniforms and carry swords. The social world changed too, as both Japanese efforts to modernize the economy and nascent nationalist civic society broke with centuries of tradition in important ways. Few social changes marked a greater break with tradition than those that concerned women. Many Korean women embraced new ideas and opportunities presented by modernizing society and a small but significant number were able to obtain good educations and participate in political life. Whether or not these were merely fraudulent window dressing or substantive policy changes is a matter of controversy. Japanese elites were haunted not only by Japan's own recent era of protest, but also by the specter of global communism, which cast a shadow on the capitalist world. Both given these circumstances and the substance and outcomes of the policies themselves, it's hard to determine where the line between Machiavellian maneuvering and genuine goodwill lies, or in fact, if there is one at all. Take rice farming. Saito inaugurated a new program for investment in irrigation works and agricultural extension activities in order to increase rice yields in the peninsula, but the increased production was almost exclusively bound for Japan where Saito hoped to avoid a repeat of the 1918 rice riots by stabilizing Japan's rice supply. Or take business, where abolishing the need for government permission to start a business may have appeared to benefit Korean entrepreneurs, but in fact, as it was probably intended, actually opened up the colony to Japanese capital. Education is another good example, an example of the kind of debates that linger about the nature of Japanese rule in Korea during the 1920s. In 1924, Japan founded a single university in Seoul as part of the imperial university system. It was called Keijo Imperial University. Uh, Keijo was what the Japanese called Seoul. It allowed only a small minority of well-to-do students to attend it or to or colleges in Japan. Despite its aim to assimilate Koreans to Japanese culture, an aim reflected from primary school education on, the GGK established separate better schools for Japanese Koreans, uh, Japanese students in Korea. More importantly, perhaps, as Michael Seth notes, the policies of this middle decade of Korean subordination may have reflected some more liberal thinking in the Japanese government, but it also represented a more sophisticated attitude toward, toward control. In other words, a governmentalist approach that would no doubt have appealed to Michel Foucault. Korean entrepreneurs, some of whom later became driving forces behind the huge industrial conglomerates known as Chebol in South Korea, became increasingly accepted as junior members of the Japanese colonial business world in the 1920s. But Japanese investment in Korea dwarfed that of Korean firms, and most major industry was controlled by Japanese interests and capital. The dominant industry in Korean hands, other than cheap textiles, where ownership was over 90%, was food processing. Koreans owned about one in five metal, machine, tool, and chemical plants, ceramics kilns, and wood and lumber mills. They owned half of the peninsula's pharmaceutical, rice milling, and printing companies, 
and they owned over 70% of beverage makers. In contrast, Japan Steel, Japan Mining, the Mitsui and Mitsubishi Zaibatsu, these were companies among the long list of major Japanese firms investing in heavy industry and mining on the peninsula. The Japanese-owned Chosen Nitrogen Company made fertilizer. It's more famous as Chiso, the corporation responsible for the massive mercury poisoning, poisoning epidemic discovered at Mina, uh, Minamata in Kumamoto in the 1950s. <laughs> Japanese firms also established chemical, electrical, textile, mining, and railroad companies. Japanese corporations and conglomerates provided hydroelectric power, railroad lines, cement, chemicals, and more for export to China. Japanese businesses purchased large tracts of forest and invested in textiles, food processing, brewing, milling, paper, and printing. While some argue that Japan took an economic interest in Korea to obtain raw materials and markets for its exports, Japan invested more than it ever received in profits because it put strategic and political objectives first. In other words, this was not simply extractive capitalism. It was extractive capitalism, but there's more to it. It was empire building. In fact, the Japanese empire was unusual globally in the enormous investment in both governmental and economic infrastructure in the colonies. This created what Sayaka Chatani has provocatively referred to as, quote, nation empire, uh, nation hyphen empire, that is, in which, quote, the large ruling apparatus constructed resembled that of the nation-state. One easy way to envision this is with statistics related to the number of Japanese officials working in the colonial bureaucracy, both as a percentage of the total population and in comparison to other colonial empires. So in 1900, Korea was a nation of about 12 million. Less than 16,000, in other words about 0.1%, were Japanese. In 1910, those numbers jumped to 14.76 million, the Korean population, 171,000, the Japanese population, and 1.3%, uh, the percentage of Japanese. In 1930, 20.4 million, 502,000, in other words, 2.5%. Finally, in 1944, the total population of Korea had reached over 25.1 million. The Japanese population exceeded three quarters of a million which made it about 3%. And roughly 40% of all the Japanese in Korea at any time during the colonial years were working for, or at least associated with, the GGK and the regime more generally. This may not seem much until, it may not seem like much until you consider, for example, that France administered a comparable Vietnamese colony of 17 million people, with less than 3,000 French and 38,000 indigenous personnel and 11,000 soldiers. As Peterson observed, very few colonies in the history of imperialism were as thoroughly and tightly controlled as was Korea by such a large and ever-expanding bureaucracy. By 1931, the peninsula was a bona fide political and economic periphery of Japan. The Korean peninsula remained overwhelmingly rural, serving as the rice basket of Japan, and its strategic bulwark against the Soviet Union and, to a lesser extent, China. The size of the economy had grown, even if that growth primarily supported Japanese capital and export markets that benefited Koreans very little. Despite the birth of recognizably modern nationalisms and some limited direct resistance to Japanese rule after the March 1st movement, that resistance was hamstrung by disunity. Moderates, 
many of the members of a new modern elite that directly benefited from Japanese rule, pushed for betterment of the Korean position within existing parameters, while radicals and communists sought more direct solutions to overthrow the GGK and kick the Japanese out. Dialogue between the proponents of such divergent approaches became increasingly difficult during the 1920s, and the questions of what constituted true patriotism, what constituted collaborationism, and what Koreans should do to regain their independence became increasingly complex, difficult, and divisive, as Adrian Buzo has observed. So we're going to move on to the third and final phase of colonial rule in Korea. It's convenient to see this as starting with the Manchurian incident, in other words, in 1931, and ending with Japan's defeat in 1945. Unlike the implementation of cultural rule policies, however, the transition between stages two and three is more gradual. As noted, already in the 1920s, cultural rule was weakening as a rationale and a methodology of government. Most obviously, the peace preservation law was applied simultaneously across the different legal systems of Japan's colonial empire. In other words, the law signed in the Japanese metropole was also applied to Korea. Nevertheless, the unofficial escalation of Japan's war in China was a landmark event in this transition. The founding of the puppet regime in Manchukuo made Korea both a conduit between Japan and Manchuria and a staging area for additional expansion on the continent. As the government general directed its energies to mobilizing all Korean resources for Japanese military campaigns in the Asian continent, Korea was plunged into a wartime economy. It was also an aspirationally self-sufficient imperial economy, one that would leverage massive government investment in the colonies into an autarkic bloc, insulated from the unstable, unpredictable world market that had brought the Great Depression crashing down on Japan a few years earlier. Active Korean support would be necessary to support this effort. From the textile mills to the mines to the paddies and fields and railroads and factories, Japan needed Koreans to buy into the empire and to give willingly of their blood, sweat, and tears. In less desperate times, this might have been achieved in many different ways, but the Japanese were on a very tight schedule. When the hardline new governor, Umaki Kazushige, replaced Saito Makoto in 1931, he set about industrializing the peninsula and stamping out Korean culture. The consequences of this shift in stance vis-a-vis -vis Korea were complex. One of the great ironies of this period was that Japan replicated in Korea some of the same urban, rural, and other socio-economic and cultural disparities that were tearing the home islands apart. Michael Robinson described this quite eloquently, writing, The industrialization of North Korea provided new jobs for peasants, but at the price of dislocating them from the densely populated South and moving them to the North. Furthermore, Korea's industrial labor force expanded simultaneously with the deepening immiseration of the Korean countryside. This period witnessed the flowering of a capitalist mass culture in Korea's cities, a popular culture providing the facade of a modernity that had evolved unevenly in the colony. The alluring consumer culture and glittering nightlife in the cities contrasted with abject poverty in the countryside. This was related to the Great Depression, and its effects on land ownership in the countryside. Indebted smallholders lost their land to Japanese creditors, and to be fair, this happened in Japan too, as it had in many previous centuries. By 1940, the price of rice had dropped to 39% of the 1925 price. 
Korean farmers who both owned and rented land earned a reasonable living, but pure tenants did not. The colonial government encouraged Korean migration, in many cases of these disadvantaged and dispossessed farmers, to northeast Manchuria. Uh, in other words, they tried to ease rural distress and expand Japanese influence. Unlike Chinese farmers, Korean settlers had access to loans from Japanese banks that enabled them to invest in better tools and better seeds. They obtained favorable rates for buying land and support for forming agrarian cooperatives. Southern Manchuria was different. These Koreans lacked rights to own property or even to work. Still, by 1942, approximately one and a half million Koreans had settled in Manchuria. What some people consider cultural genocide accompanied these changes. In 1934, Ngaki revamped the school curriculum to emphasize the study of Japanese language, ethics, and history. Korean was banned in schools, both as a subject and as a language of communication. The same was true in public offices. By 1940, banks and businesses were required to keep records only in Japanese. And already in 1935, the GGK began forcing students and government employees to attend Shinto rituals. Later, they would be forced to register at Shinto shrines. These changes were profoundly unpopular. The situation devolved further when Japan's war in China escalated further in the summer of 1937. This ushered in the years of total mobilization and forced assimilation. The education system was increasingly militarized. Korean men were first permitted then conscripted into the Japanese army. In 1939, the GGK issued a decree, quote-unquote, allowing all Koreans to adopt Japanese names. More than 80% of Koreans eventually complied with what was not really meant as a voluntary measure. Korean language books were no longer published, and after 1943, students were punished for using Korean at school. Yet the colonial regime was ambiguous about this policy, insisting that Koreans were now Japanese, but also maintaining their distinct identity and status as subordinate and inferior subjects. Even after the name order, official records distinguished between Koreans and Japanese, perpetuating a prejudicial hierarchy. As Michael Robinson observed, the goal in the minds of colonial officials was a seamless cultural, legal, and, administration, and administrative assimilation of Korea, and where this could not be accomplished in reality, cosmetic fiction would do. The total wartime mobilization of economy and society proceeded in Korea, as it did in Japan. By 1941, over 90% of the capital invested in Korean industry came from Japan. A south-to-north railroad line uh, funneled goods from both Japan and Korea into Manchuria, and after the outbreak of the, Sino the Second Sino-Japanese War in 1937, uh, onward to China. Heavy investment in hydroelectric power plants along the Yalu River and elsewhere, and uh, power lines throughout the country provided energy for steel, chemical, machinery, metal, and machine factories to support the Japanese war effort. Most weapons were manufactured in Japan, leaving the Korean machine industry to do repairs, to build vehicles, and to do some shipbuilding. Japan subsidized the Mitsui, Mitsubishi, and Sumitomo Zaibatsu to mine copper zinc, manganese, tungsten, molybdenum, and other metals for military purposes. 
the average annual growth in Korea's industrial production in the 1930s was 15%, almost double the rate from 1910 to 1928. Total mobilization increasingly meant that the cosmetic fiction which Robinson identified was replaced by the reality of equal rights for Koreans. This was hardly a comfort. Becoming assimilated meant that Koreans would be allowed the same privileges to sacrifice for the emperor granted the citizenry of the mainlands, namely to be conscripted for the military and labor forces, to render their rice and precious metals to the imperial treasury, and to be forcefully moved wherever manpower was needed. So I want to shift gears here a little bit and uh, think, start thinking about what happens after this. And the way I want to do that is think about some of the political developments that happened outside of Korea during this period. Uh, and some of the people who were involved. Because many of the most important long-term developments for Korean history happened in the global Korean diaspora. This makes sense. Most Koreans who continued the struggle for independence had to move outside of Japanese-controlled territories. A government in exile was established in Shanghai in 1919 with Syngman Rhee, who became the eventual first president of South Korea as its president after 1922. It's a bitter irony that he was succeeded after a brief interregnum by Park Chung-hee, who was dictator of South Korea from 61 to 79, also father of the relatively recently deposed President Park Geun-hye. Uh, under the Japanese name Takagi Masao, the elder Park graduated top of his class from a Japanese military academy and became lieutenant in the Japanese army in Manchuria to do battle against opponents of Japanese colonialism, including Korean guerrillas. Despite intrigue, setbacks, and violent Japanese reprisals, for a time Manchuria was a, hot, a, a hotbed and a hideout for guerrillas fighting the Japanese. During the 1920s, the government general of Korea encouraged Koreans to set up their own institutions to govern themselves in Manchuria. Almost 85% of the population joined the Korean Association, which provided aid for the poor, built public facilities, promoted public hygiene, also agricultural training and irrigation facilities, and assisted in the management of social systems, including education. The association oversaw a financial association that made loans to rich landlords at reasonable rates. A mutual aid association made loans to, small, to tenant farmers. In 1932, after the Japanese army in Manchuria had established the puppet regime of Manchukuo, Kim Il-sung, the future leader of North Korea, uh, the, D the DPRK, organized a small guerrilla unit in northern Manchuria. Like a significant number of Koreans unwilling to submit to Japanese rule, Kim's family moved back and forth between Korea and Manchuria while he was growing up. One of the unusual features of Japanese colonial rule was the geographic, historical, culture, cultural, and ethnic proximity of the coloners and colonized. Perhaps the closest analog in the European empires might have been the relationship between England and Ireland, though even here the comparison is far from perfect. For one thing, as Michael Robinson pointed out, Koreans had historically considered themselves culturally superior to their new colonial masters. For another, though assimilation did not become an urgent policy until after the war broke out in 1937, from the outset, the Japanese had intended that Korea would not be absorbed just politically by the empire, but that it would also be culturally assimilated, to become one with Japan in all respects. 
This assimilation project was based on Japan's claim in the pre-colonial years that the Japanese and Koreans shared a common ancestry and were, essentially, family. And this helps to to explain the overall Japanese ambivalence about colonial rule in Korea. Many saw the Koreans as benighted little brothers that needed to be led to the light of civilization, firmly if necessary, but for their own good. In government and business circles, a majority uh, seemed to have understood that their control and development of Korea would be fundamentally not that different from the Meiji project of developing the hinterlands of the Japanese archipelago, with, yes, some additional issues of language and culture. Of course, there were also rapacious, immoral plunderers and profiteers, but this is not unique to the Japanese-Korean colonial situation. In the end, Japanese colonialism produced wealth and poverty, acceptance and animosity, revolutionary potential, and conservative reaction. On the one hand, by allowing Korean landlords and businessmen to flourish, Japan established models for Korean empire enterprises after 1945. By breaking down hereditary status barriers, it opened opportunities to people previously blocked from upward mobility. This was especially true for women, freed from Confucianist bonds. By introducing modern education, Japan introduced some Koreans to science, foreign languages, and social science, and enabled the birth of modern mass culture. On the other hand, Japan, Japanese rule forced millions of Koreans to migrate from their village communities to Japanese-owned factories and mines across the empire. The Japanese eliminated meaningful participation in the political process for Koreans, and encouraged a growing gap between capitalist industrialists and wealthy landlords versus a new proletariat and a mass of sharecropping tenants. And when some of the legal and extra-legal disparities between Japanese and Koreans were finally addressed, it was only in the context of subjugating Koreans and subjecting them to the same horrors of war as their Japanese overlords, from forced labor to conscription to sexual indenture as so-called comfort women, etc. In other words, the legacy of this period is profoundly mixed, and remains salient for the relationship between both Koreas and Japan today. As the Nobel Prize laureate William Faulkner opined, the past is never dead. It's not even past. <laughs>